Good morning, everyone. If you want to make your way in and grab a seat. <clears throat> if you're already here, you can turn to 1 Samuel 15. That's where we'll pick up this morning as we continue our series, The Heart of the Kings, and spend a second week looking at Saul. Saul, fear, and the delight of God. And so let's go to the Lord now in prayer as we... As we jump in, Father, you have loved us with a very great love, a love that is steadfast, a love that is redeeming, a love that is faithful, a love that is sovereign, a love that chooses as you please your people, a love that sent your own son into the world to take on human flesh, to live obediently, humbly, righteously, and the only one who did, and to go to the cross to pay for our sin, to atone for our iniquity, to satisfy your justice, your wrath, your law, to fulfill it, and on the third day to be raised um, as our hope, as our justification, as a statement of his perfection and his holiness and your absolute pleasure in him so that now all who have faith in him can be saved. So Father, help us to believe, to trust, to give ourselves entirely to you, this one who has loved us so richly in Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. Well, if you're new to this series, uh, last week we yeah, I began a study of just a sample of kings from Israel and from Judah, kind of drawing one defining feature from each of their reigns is the plan, and then one sort of defining truth about God that is evident through their reigns and his response to their reigns, and then one sort of defining need that we need to realize about ourselves from their stories. And so last week we started talking about King Saul and fear and the delight of God. And we looked at how the fear of man brings a snare. How the fear of man in Saul's life really kind of dwarfed his fear of the Lord. And that affected everything. It's gonna affect how he thinks, how he feels, how he relates to God, how he relates to other people. It's gonna compel him to offer a false sacrifice that we looked at, while it's gonna compel him to refuse to offer the sacrifice which the Lord did desire. And so last week, yeah, 1 Samuel 15, 9, where God's, or really the Lord's going to command Saul to go in and wipe out the Amalekites to devote everything to destruction as a fulfillment of his word concerning Amalek, as a statement about his glory, about the worth of his name. And in 1 Samuel 15, 9, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs. And all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So to God, it's all despised. To Saul and the people, just a little of it is despised. To God, it was all to be destroyed as a statement of his holy character and his justice. To Saul and the people, it was just loot, just stuff. They saw fit, in other words, to sort of trim some words from what God had said, to reinterpret it, to put their spin on it, 
to take God's word and shift it a little bit to fit what they really wanted to do. So that in verse 10, God's going to say to Samuel, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And we looked at how oblivious Saul was to this. In verse 12, he set up a monument to himself. In verse 13, he's going to come out to Samuel as if everything's just great. He's going to say, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. So the exact inverse of what God said in verse 10. He's turned back from performing my commandment. Yet Saul's going to say, oh, I've, I've done it. I've performed the commandment of the Lord. And the one person that isn't fooled is the Lord. He's going to send Samuel, who now isn't fooled. In verse 14, Samuel says, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? In other words, the evidence is everywhere. Just Samuel just looks around. It's okay, if you fulfilled what God commanded, then what are all these animals? And this is Saul's opportunity to repent, to be humbled to be contrite, to be broken, to cry out for mercy, to seek forgiveness. But no, verse 15, they have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spare the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've devoted to destruction. Saul's answer is, well, hey, I'm not the main problem here. I'm not even the main problem in my own life. It's all these people. My motivations are pure. My intentions are good. It may look wrong, but don't worry, it's not wrong. Everything's fine. It may look as if I stopped halfway, but surely my obedience to the Lord is enough. He ought to be okay with this. Verse 16, then Samuel said to Saul, stop. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. We talked about last week how that really is, at the end of the day, the only word that matters. That statement, I will tell you what the Lord said. What you think, what I think, what the culture thinks, what the times say, what the community thinks, none of it's relevant. It's what does God say? What does God see? How does God explain it? Again, notice verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? That's his diagnosis. That's his explanation. That's what the Lord sees and says. To which Saul quickly replies in verse 20, I have obeyed. I have gone, I have devoted, I have brought, but the people, for the sake of sacrifice. So we left off last week with Saul still defending, still arguing, still making his case, still managing his image. The fear of man really does bring a snare. We talked about how, yeah, the PR department in his life is working overtime. And he's got nobody in the compliance department. And how that tends to reflect what we're like naturally. We have 100 full-time staff members in our public relations department. And we've got one part-time 
person in compliance. And the Lord intervenes. And so what we're going to pick up with is where the heart of God is now going to be revealed through what God's going to say through Samuel. And in what God's going to reveal, what God's going to say about himself, what he desires, what he delights in is going to now reveal then one great need that we all bring. So look there in 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And just in those two verses, so much is revealed about God, about who he is, about what he's like, about what he delights in. I think first what we ought to notice is just the mercy and patience of God. That's one thing I think that is meant to stand out to us right out of the gate, that after all that Saul has done, God actually sends Samuel to speak to him. And that's merciful. Samuel's talking to Saul and trying to help him see. I mean, that's patience. God could simply have incinerated Saul, just wiped him out. Instead, he sends his prophet. In other words, the whole Bible that we have in our hands is a massive statement about the mercy and patience of God. That he would say anything that he would reveal himself to us, that he would warn us, that he would send prophets. How often does he say that about his love for Israel, just how much he reached out to this stubborn people, sending prophet after prophet, and eventually his own son. Yeah, God speaks, God counsels, God reveals himself in the midst of all Saul's pride and idolatry. And that's meant to show us, okay, God is patient. He's merciful. Think about even back to Genesis 4 and the story of Cain where Cain's going to bring this wrong sacrifice. In other words, he's going to bring his sacrifice without a heart of faith, without humility. Abel's going to bring his sacrifice. The Lord's going to receive it because he brought it in faith. He brought it humbly. Cain doesn't. So God receives Abel's sacrifice, doesn't receive. He rejects Cain's. Now, God could have just destroyed him. But instead, he talks to him, and he's trying to teach him and help him, and of course, Cain's going to get angry. His countenance is going to fall. What's God going to do? He's going to talk to him. He's going to warn him, Cain, beware, like sin is crouching at your door. It's his desire is for you, but you must master it. Well, so what does Cain do? Well, he takes his brother, loses him to the field, and kills him. Then what does God do? God approaches Cain and talks to him speaks it to him, confronts him. What does Cain do? Repent? No. Complains that the punishment's too great. That he's, got to, he's going to be cursed from the earth, from the ground. And then what does he say? He's afraid because, okay, somebody's going to kill me. Just the irony of that. After he's murdered his own brother and God is talking to him, he's going to discipline him, 
And yet Cain's like, this is too great. Somebody's going to kill me. And what does God do? Well, he puts a mark on Cain so that nobody will harm him. Like the whole story just shows the patience of God. The mercy of God. And so here we are back to Saul. We see the same, just the mercy and patience of God revealed through his words. But also the delight of God in humble, obedient hearts. See what else the Lord reveals about himself. Has the Lord a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrificing as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. That's what he delights in. His people who will listen to him, who will be humble before him, who will take his word seriously. He could also say, a people who love me. Jesus is going to say in John 14 that he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Lord does not delight in lip service, but genuine, joyful devotion from the heart. He wants you from the heart, me from the heart, not just externals, not just show up, not just go through the motions but to give ourselves to the worship of God. That's why all the sacrifices, all the burnt offerings, right? That's what Psalm 50 is even trying to explain to us is it was never because God had a shortage of livestock, right? Remember how he's gonna reprove Israel in Psalm 50 and say, you know, basically that I'm not gonna reprove you for your sacrifices and burnt offerings for they're continually before me. Whereas you've always got them here. You're going through all the right motions. He's going to say, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. Every beast of the forest is mine, all the birds. I don't call you to bring these sacrifices because I have a shortage of animals. I don't bring, call you to bring these things because I need food or I eat or drink. It's like, no, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I'm not. I'm not hungry. But if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I don't need cattle. But even if I did, I wouldn't tell you. I'd just make my own. No, he's going to say, what, what I want is when you bring these sacrifices and offerings, that you come thankfully, you come humbly, you come worshipfully. It's just a massive theme of the scripture, that the sacrifice, the offering was just a means by which we bring our heart to God, an outward expression of an inward devotion, an inward worship, an inward affection, an inward faithful obedience. That's what God's revealing here to Saul. Like I really don't need the lip service about what you're trying to do with all this. I want your heart. The king that God will choose to replace Saul will come to realize this. In Psalm 51, David's gonna say, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You would not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And David's going to write that after his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. So, so David's going to come to see it. Lord, you, you don't, you're not going to delight in all these sacrifices and offerings, but the sacrifice you want is a contrite heart, a broken spirit, repentance before you. Because we all sin, we all fall short of the glory of God, but do we see it? 
Are we willing to admit it? Are we willing to come before God humble, contrite, broken, in need of help, not making a case for why we don't need help? And so the word of God isn't going to continually ask us, did you perfect yourself today? Are you sinless today? Did you check off all the right boxes today? It's going to be, are you humble? Are you going to come as a child would come, poor in spirit? Are you going to come the way an attorney would come, making a case for yourself? So the delight of God in humble, obedient hearts, but also the desire of God for hearts fully given to him. That's another thing we're seeing here through Saul's reign, that Saul just tended to not go the whole way. He stopped at some point before obedience, at some point before what God had really said. And so we see it, if we really want to know what God wants and delights in from us, it's the whole of us. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your mind, all your strength. That's the first and greatest commandment. That's what all the other laws and statutes in Israel were just for examples. Love God, love people, for example. Don't worship idols. For example, don't slander. For example, but rather love God, love people. So humble hearts who tremble at his word. That's what he desires. Contrite hearts who own their sin. Broken hearts who grieve transgressions. Impoverished hearts who refuse to trust in themselves. Meek hearts who will not boast before God, but only boast in God. Tender hearts who love to please God, love to please the Father. Honest hearts who see and confess their need for his help. Trusting hearts who look to God for forgiveness, actually look to him for mercy. Low hearts who long to be decreased so that Christ could be increased. Fearful hearts who regard God as holy in everything. Pure hearts who see his extreme worth in everything and give him everything. And we could go all day with all the things that scripture says about the kind of heart he wants, the kind of heart he desires. So he doesn't delight in outward religion, in those who are most outwardly attractive, outwardly high performing, outwardly impressive to everyone else. If there's anything that's gonna set you against the culture of our day, it's that. Just the value we would place on the inside, on the internal not the external, not how good you look, not how high achieving you are, how high you perform, how much the world looks at you and applauds. He delights in hearts given to him in faith. That's why when Jesus comes, you know, he's gonna send his son, the son of God's gonna take on human flesh and live as a human being. And he's gonna take the form of a bond slave. He's going to be obedient, Philippians 2 says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he was perfectly pleasing to the Father. You know, Isaiah 53 talks about this. He was not an attractive man. 
He was not outwardly impressive to everybody. In fact, you get into the Gospels and people are going to say things like, does anything good come from Galilee? From Nazareth? Surely not. I mean, this is a carpenter's son. Again, he took a form that nobody would follow him and be drawn to him because of how he looked outwardly. No, he's even going to say it. Unless the Spirit draws you, you're not going to come. Because there's nothing worldly, impressive about him. And yet, he's perfectly pleasing to the Father. He's going to say things like, okay, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I mean, think about that a minute. At the, with the woman at the well, the disciples are going to come and they're going to ask him about food. And he's like, yeah, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Like, what a statement. That's nourishment to us. Each day that that's what we feed on. That's what sort of feeds the soul is just doing God's will. Just pleasing the Father. We also see the seriousness of God about hearts given to rebellion. Notice what Samuel's going to say in verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. I mean, rebellion is the same as divination. In other words, for me to hear the commands of God, to love God with all my heart, to love my neighbor as myself, and then to just say, no, I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to do that for this hour. So you might as well practice witchcraft. Now, don't go practice witchcraft. It's not the point, right? The point is to see that's how serious God is about it. That yes, on one level, we look at the scripture and see there are degrees of sin. An actual physical act of adultery is further down the road than fantasizing about adultery. It's further down the staircase. But yet, qualitatively speaking, he's saying it's fundamentally the same. That's why Jesus is going to come saying, okay, you've heard that it was said you should not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even lust after a woman in your heart, you've done it. You've heard that it said you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you hate your brother or sister without cause, you've done it. That though the quantity is different, the quality, the nature of it is the same. Iniquity and idolatry to arrogantly reinterpret God's word, to sort of proudly re-spin what he has instructed, to make it say what I want it to say. He's saying that's basically claiming the throne of God for yourself. Saying, okay, you get to determine what is true and what is false, what is right, what is wrong. To make the Bible say what I want it to say about marriage and divorce, about fornication and homosexuality, about anything, to justify what I want to do is outright insubordination toward God. That's what Samuel's saying here. That's what God is sending Samuel to convey to Saul. To declare yourself, I have pleased the Lord. I have fulfilled what he said. But according to the word of God, not. His idolatry. Rebel against the word of God in the smallest thing or practice witchcraft. It's basically the same is what he's getting at. It all flows from the same basic heart 
of a reverence toward God, of a reverence toward his word. When you think about all that, when you soak that in for a minute, what, what should be our response? What do you think? After I've said all that, and we've walked through, here's what Samuel's conveying to Saul about God, about what he's like, about what he delights in, about what he desires, about how serious sin is. What should be our response? Yeah. What should we be crying out at this point? Yeah. Conviction? Oh, Lord, what? Yeah, have mercy. Oh, Lord, have mercy. That should be our response. When we see the life and works of Saul, with whom we should closely identify, and we hear the revelation of God about himself, to whom we have no answer, we should conclude that we're in big trouble. Huge trouble. Like, irredeemable in our own hands trouble we need a kind of help that is simply beyond anything that we have and that brings us to this second big section of just our need revealed that when we read these kinds of stories we're not meant to go okay there's just something unique about Saul that I don't have or anyone else in the Old Testament what we're meant to see is, oh, this is worse than I thought. Like, there is really nothing in my reach, nothing I can do. And the harder I work to try to do it, the more offensive it is to God. That's why he's going to say things like, your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. Does it mean God doesn't care about righteousness? No, he loves it. It just means if we're using our own righteousness as the means to commend ourselves to God, that's the very thing that is most grotesque. Nothing more anti-gospel than self-righteousness. And so our need is revealed in this very story. Because everyone does have an opinion about what they need. Saul has an opinion about what he needs. But yet the Lord is the only real trustworthy judge. If you really want to know what you need, that's why we go to the scripture where he says, okay, I'm gonna give you everything pertaining to life and godliness, everything you really need. Saul has an opinion about what he needs and he thinks both Samuel and God need to see the good in him. They need to see his best intentions. They need to chill out a little bit, back off a little, look on the bright side. Realize he's actually a pretty good guy doing some pretty good stuff. And the Lord says to Saul, you're actually like someone who practices witchcraft. You're an idolater, a rebel. And what's interesting is even though Saul disagrees, that's exactly where his life will take him. To witchcraft, to idolatry, to sorcery. Those are the things as his reign goes on, he's going to resort to. Because he's not going to really take to heart, even though in chapter 15, after some of what we just read, Saul's going to say, okay, I've sinned, verse 24. I've transgressed. I feared the people. 
Obey their voice rather than God's. Please pardon my sin. What the rest of the story will show us is it was just a temporary worldly sorrow. And we're meant to see our need in it. And firstly, for salvation from God. Not a break, not for him to see the good in us, but for him to provide a way of salvation. Look back to verse 22. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, to listen than the fat of rams. So when we hear those words, we're not meant to say, okay, I guess I'll just try harder to impress God with all my righteous works. We're meant to hear it and go, well, then I need you to do something to provide that. If that's what you delight in, in obedience and sacrifice and, well, then I need your help. And now the obedience that God really wants is an obedience of faith. Romans 1.5, the Apostle Paul is going to say he was sent into the world to bring about the obedience of faith. Not the obedience of good works, meaning all these sacrifices and burnt offerings, but an obedience of faith, an obedience of trusting God and his provision of salvation. Listen to Micah 6, verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Which, by the way, is probably one of the biggest questions that the Bible sets out to answer. How does a sinner approach God? How does a sinner get reconciled to God? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? What gifts am I going to bring him? What sacrifices am I going to bring? And then listen to the list. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He says, he's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? It's something inside that he's after. But notice the escalation. Burnt offerings, calves, a year old, thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil, my firstborn. Of course, what's his answer? None of it will do. None of it will be enough. It won't be through the sacrifice of your son that you're saved. It's going to be the sacrifice of his son by which you're saved. So important that all the commandments of Scripture, all the rules of God's word, all that he asks and requires of people, all that he tells us to do, it all exists to reveal his own glory, to reveal his own holiness, to show us our need for help, our need for salvation, our need for someone to reconcile us to God. Which then brings us to the next point, a savior from God, not just salvation from God, but a savior from God. That we don't need a king after our own heart. We don't need even a God after our own heart. We don't need to pay our own way to provide our own salvation. We need a redeemer. We need a savior. We need a king who is so perfect, so humble, 
so wise, so pleasing to the Father that his life and death and resurrection will actually achieve our forgiveness. It's in Matthew 21, verse 12, where yeah, even when Jesus came, we completely misunderstood what we really needed from him. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Hosanna means save now. So here's Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, which should have clued them to something. And they're all crying out, Hosanna, save now, save now. Now, what do they mean when they say save now? What are the people talking about? Yeah, save from Rome, right? Save from our enemies. Save from our circumstances. Get us out of this external mess. That's what they're crying out. That's the king they thought they were getting. That's the king the nation of Israel wanted in Saul, right? Who will fight our battles for us? Who will go out and defeat our enemies? Who will just fill in the blank, just circumstantial? to be like the other nations. And so now here Jesus comes and it's still the same song being played, new verse. Save now, fight our battles against the Romans. Get them out of here. Get our nation back again. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, who is this? Isn't that the right question? (laughs) Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you made it a den of robbers. Oh, what king are they getting? Not one that's going to save them from Rome. Not one that's coming to deal with their circumstances. But one that's coming to deal with their hearts. And so it's telling that his first act in coming into Jerusalem after this triumphal entry is to clear the temple. It's to confront the real problem. To show them their real need. You actually need salvation from God. You actually need reconciliation to God. You actually need someone to deal with your own spiritual condition, not your circumstantial condition. They thought they needed a king to defeat and drive out the Romans. But no, instead they need a king who will reconcile them to God. Which is why in just a few days from this moment, they're going to be screaming something else. Right? Not Hosanna anymore. What are they going to be shouting? Crucify him. Yeah, we don't have use for this king. We don't need this kind of ruler. They will reject him and kill him. And in doing so, fulfill the very plan the Lord had for him to redeem us from our sin. Listen to Hebrews 10, verse 5. Consequently... When Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. 
In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Because he's quoting there from the Psalms, but you're seeing that he's understanding something that Saul didn't understand. That in Saul, God gives us the king we deserve, the king we thought we needed, the king that we think would fix the externals. In Christ, we get the king we need the savior we need, who comes and says, yeah, sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but my body is gonna be offered up as the sacrifice, as the payment for sin. Sacrifices and offerings served their purpose, but they're fulfilled in Christ. They're gonna give way to the only sacrifice and offering able to actually satisfy the justice of God. So every second of every day and every thought and every affection under every circumstance and every trial, Jesus Christ obeyed the Father perfectly. The Father didn't have to send any prophets to Jesus to correct him. Any prophets to Christ to show him how he'd slipped up. Every second of every day in every attitude and every thought, he was perfectly pleasing to the Father. So when he's raised up, upon the cross, when he's put to death, he's actually a sinless lamb, a lamb without blemish, a king without fault. That's why when he goes in the grave, the grave can't hold him. Saul's gonna go to the grave and he's gonna stay in the grave. David's gonna go in the grave and he's gonna stay in the grave. Jesus goes into the grave and the grave is like, what are you doing here? (laughs) You don't belong, can't hold you. And on the third day, he's going to raise. The body the Father prepared for Jesus would be offered upon the cross as a substitute for us, an atonement for us. And he's going to be crucified under the sign, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. What do the leaders of the Jews think about that inscription? They wanted it taken down. They hated that. This is not our king. Remember what they're going to say when... Pilate's like, hey, this is your king. You want me to kill him? What are they going to say? We have no king but what? But Caesar. Isn't that ironic? Just again, replaying the same old theme. We want to be like the nations. We don't want the king God sends. Not one that's going to confront our sin. Not one that's going to tell us we need forgiveness. Not one that's going to provide a salvation we don't think we need not one that's gonna offer himself to save us from something we don't need saving from. Yeah, this isn't our king. We'll take Caesar, please, as our king. And yet we say, those in faith, this is Jesus, my king. This is my savior. This is my redeemer. That's why we look to the cross and in faith say, yeah, this is the king I want. Not the king I deserve, but the king I need. Under King Jesus, our sins are washed away. That's why we're meant to run to him, cling to him. Through King Jesus, our heavenly father puts his Holy Spirit in our hearts and gives us new hearts, as we'll look at in a minute, to obey him. New hearts to follow him, new hearts to believe him. In King Jesus, we're not merely delivered from earthly enemies in the future, which we will be. We're actually delivered from the wrath of God now. 
And that's meant to help us fear him, revere him, be in awe of him. So I love it. It's Psalm 130 that says, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who can stand? But then it says, but there's forgiveness with you so that you may be feared. Isn't that interesting? You ever thought, have you ever read that and went, that's strange. There's forgiveness with you so I'll fear you? What's he saying? Well, I think what he's getting at, it's like if we're all crowded into this room and we're all under judgment and there's all these voices and all these people everywhere and they're all saying whatever they're saying, but then one voice stands out and says to you, your sins are forgiven. What does that say about that person? Oh, that's God. There's the one I need to fear. <laughs> I wasn't sure until the one spoke that actually forgave. That's why when Jesus is going to say, your sins are forgiven, what are the Pharisees are going to say in response? Who does he think he is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? There's few things that require more authority in the universe than the authority to forgive sins. And that's why he says, yeah, with you there's forgiveness so that we would be in awe of you. So that we would know there's only, this is the only one in the room that matters. Here's the judge. By King Jesus, we're reconciled to God through the blood of his cross. And so now trust him. Worship him. Adore him. Exalt him. Jesus Christ does not feed our sins or disobey God to claim our loyalty. Not like Saul. Saul's going to just give the people what they want. Not Christ. He's going to give us what we need. He died for our sins, not feed our sins. He set us free from our sins. And that's how he claimed our loyalty. So follow him. Honor him as king. Yeah, here's a principle, I think, from this passage. God delights in those who reverently receive his word with wholehearted obedience. And what word are we to receive? Well, the word of the cross, the word of the gospel, that Christ is the Son of God given for us, that Christ is our King. John 1, 29, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. God's not going to say that about Saul because that's not the king that's going to be able to please the father, redeem us. Now, all that being said, I think it's not enough just to say it. What we also need from God is not just a salvation, not just a savior, but actual new hearts to believe it. New hearts from God. And before we get to these last couple points, any questions, any comments? Anything you're wondering about what's been said so far? Yes. I've been thinking about my motivations for obedience. At least I can say I fear God, but many times the fear is a servile fear that I would get a good deal from God that he won't punish me. But the psalmist talks about a fear of God which obeys him because he wants to respect or respond in loving obedience. 
then one thing which is that since mm. I still live in sin, that everything that I do is still laced with sin, and yet my father receives it, rather like my child when she was young would receive, would give me a portrait that she had drawn of me and I would receive it like a Rembrandt. Mm. So how does one move from the servile fear to the filial yep. fear? Yeah. Yeah, so the question is how, you know, we're called to fear the Lord. That's one way to be motivated, to please God. But then is that where it's meant to stay? Or is it meant to grow and graduate even to the love of God? I think the answer is, yeah, that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But I don't think it's the end of it. The fear of the Lord. And, and even when, for the believer now, what it means, okay, there's forgiveness with him that he would be feared. I don't think it's this stranger fear or fear of punishment. You know, that's one of the things that John is going to say, that perfect love casts out fear, because fear has to do with the fear of punishment. But now that we're his children, yeah, that punishment's been put on Christ. So I think in one way now, that fear is actually an awe of God, a reverence for God, a respect for God, the kind of fear that draws us to him, the kind of fear that wants us to desire, to please him, to honor him. I think it's also realizing, okay, but that that fear is only going to be pleasing so much as it is attached to faith. That without faith, it's impossible to please God. And yet coming in faith, no matter how much we fumble and bumble about, that's part of what you're getting at with the portrait that your daughter would paint for you. And you're like, okay, it's not, the lines aren't straight, the colors aren't great, the likeness isn't even that close, but she delighted in it. She just wanted to offer it. And so you're like, I'll take it. And so, yeah, when we come to the Lord in faith, even though we're fumbling about, falling about, whatever it might be, it, yeah, that honors him. That pleases him. That's why you see it all through the Gospels, where there'll be, Jesus will come across, whether it's children, or just humble lepers, or humble blind men, or immoral women who come humbly and grab his feet, or the, the tax collector in the marketplace praying to God without, you know, just, Father, forgive me, the sinner. And Jesus is going to look at that and go, yeah, they're justified. That's, the Father receives that. And it's not because, okay, that work in and of itself impresses God. It's that when brought in faith through Christ, like that, that's the offering of a child who's been forgiven and reconciled. And so that's why now we can be pleasing to him. We can in many ways, though imperfectly, though sinfully, that we, we can honor him. We can obey him. And that's part of even what, you know, the spirit being, as we'll get out here in a little bit, just having new hearts from God that are filled with the spirit, we can do it. But then also the other part, I think, which is to your point, we're also praying, though, that that is also not just attached to faith, but attached to love. As Paul's going to say in Galatians 5, but faith working itself out through love. 2 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5, for the love of Christ compels us. Or Ephesians 5, yeah, where it talks about to imitate Christ, and it says, as beloved children. We don't just go, okay, I'm just going to imitate Christ as a stranger, but as a beloved child. That God actually thinks, okay, the, God's love for us and our love for God is motivating, it's compelling. But then that's some of what we're learning, right? That's some of what God is teaching us is how to love. Jesus who loved perfectly, who died and rose to pay the penalty for our lack of love, 
now sends his spirit, gives us new hearts, fills us with the spirit to teach us how to love God and others. And that's very much what a lot of sanctification is, is about. But we need new hearts from God. We need hearts that will revere God rather than people. will love God rather than our own reputations. And to do so, we need new hearts. King Saul was so preoccupied with human approval, so preoccupied with his human kingdom, so preoccupied with making his life work the way he wanted it to, that it was like impossible for him to believe God, trust God, hear God, follow God. Listen to John chapter 5, verse 39. This is Jesus talking to the religious leaders. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it's they that bear witness about me. All right, you search the scriptures because you think in them that there's eternal life, meaning there's all these rules. And if you keep all these rules, you'll have eternal life. But you don't realize, the Pharisees, that all the scriptures point to me. All the scriptures show you your sinfulness, show you your need, and then show you where the answer is. Show you who to trust in. They all testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says, I don't receive glory from people, but I know that you don't have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you'll receive him, because that's like you. You'll receive him because he's for him. And since you're for you, you, you like that. It fits. But Jesus is like, I come in my Father's name, and that's unnerving to you. You don't receive me. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. In other words, the fear of man is such a snare that it will actually hinder faith. And that's Saul's life. How can you believe, Saul, if you're so busy trying to get glory from people, so busy trying to make your kingdom work? How can we believe in Christ if we fear people more than God? How can we confess and follow Christ if we seek glory from people, not from God? And that's why he has to give us new hearts. That's why we have to be born again, which is precisely what he does in Christ. Is when the spirit enters and opens our eyes and ears and gives us a new heart, it is now a new heart that doesn't fear people, but fears God and sees Christ for who he is. Trusts Christ for who he is. Honors Christ for who he is. But even then, there's more. Not just new hearts from God, but then sanctification from God. Spiritual growth from God. That just getting a new heart, that first day we believed and that we trusted, you know, wasn't enough. We also have to be changed and transformed. That it's enough to be saved, that... A new heart in Christ, we're redeemed, but then now, as we just talked about, we're learning how to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Colossians 1 verse 9, the Apostle Paul says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, 
asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So, all right, Colossians, from the day we heard that you believed, that you were born again, you now follow Jesus, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So we're praying that God would do in you the very thing that apart from his spirit we can't do, the very thing Saul lacked, filled with knowledge of the will of God and able, as I'll say next, to walk in a manner that's worthy. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered you, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what we need. Praise God in Christ, that's what we get. That's what we receive. A new heart from God, filled with the spirit of God. And then every day thereafter, being filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and understanding in order to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, as we're united to Christ in faith, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing all the more in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power. Do we not need that every day? How many days do you get up and go, oh, not today, can't do it today. And that's just really what we're meant to feel every day. To pray, okay, Lord, you have to strengthen me with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy that I would give thanks to you every day because you're the one that's qualified me to share in the inheritance with all the saints. What inheritance? Well, the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, in response to Saul, God's heart is going to be revealed. God's delight is going to be revealed. His desire is going to be revealed. His holiness is going to be revealed. And in all that, we're going to see our need's going to be revealed. Our need for salvation from God, a savior from God, new hearts from God, sanctification, spiritual growth from God, so that Colossians 1 would be true of us delivered from the domain of darkness, transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Any final questions or thoughts or yeah, comments in our final minutes? Yeah, good question. So, yeah, the question is, is, <clears throat> is a new heart a one-time thing or is it sort of a continual thing that has to keep happening? And if it's a one-time thing, we really do have a new heart. Why, why do we still sin? Um, which one of the, yeah, one of the great 
questions ever is, okay, why do I still do what I don't want to do? Why is it still there? Yes, number one, the new heart is a one-time thing. Like we're given a new heart in Christ. We're born from above, John 3. Born by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And in doing so, the Spirit is put in us as a guarantee, as a seal. You know, Ephesians 1 talks about that. This is a seal. Okay, God chose you. And then on that day that he's chosen for you to be born again, filled you with the Spirit, and that's finished. It's done. You're his. You're his child. That cannot be taken away. 2 Corinthians 5, we are new creations in Christ. And so God doesn't have to keep doing that. But there's this reality that, okay, but sin is still present in us. So justification, you, you may have heard this before, that it's, it's you know, basically being set free from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is, is being set free from the power of sin. And so we've been set apart and we're being set free from the power of sin. But in glorification, we're set free from the very presence of sin. And we're not there yet. And so as Paul said in Romans 7, I find then this principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And so even though we have this new heart, this new love for God, this new desire, yet we see, okay, but there's still all these other competing desires. But I would argue, first of all, if that bothers you, that's usually an indicator you're born again. <laughs> like if you're bothered by the fact that there's sin present in you, if you're bothered by the fact that and you're actually convicted by that, humbled by that, well, then that's really what, where repentance begins, is that very sorrow over sin, that grief over sin. And so then the rest of our Christian life on earth is a life of repentance, a life of grieving sin, but not only grieving sin, looking to Christ and trusting in Christ, not just sort of seeking forgiveness, but actually receiving forgiveness, not just needing grace, but actually realizing you've been given grace so that we are both sinners but also saints all at once. We're both unholy and holy all at once, depending on which side we're talking about. But you're, we're awaiting that day when we will be glorified, when not just the penalty of sin, not just the power of sin, but even the presence of sin is put away. Yeah. Good question. One more. One more comment, thought, question. Yeah, yeah, just the, the comment that, yeah, there's nothing more anti-gospel than self-righteousness and how even as a believer, it's still tempting. And I think that's somewhat Paul's getting at to the Galatians when he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before whose very eyes Jesus Christ was crucified, having begun by the Spirit, are you now trying to perfect yourself by the flesh? He's like, okay, you, you received the new life. You received the gospel by faith. You received the Spirit of God by faith. Are you now trying to earn it? Are you now trying to perfect yourself by the flesh? And so why is he having to say that? That's the first book, that's the first epistle Paul's gonna write. It's like that, because it's, that's one of the chief struggles we'll ever have as believers, is we forget the gospel. We forget you know, the grace of God in Christ. 
we forget the totality of that work, that finished work of Jesus. So there's something, and that's part of the sin principles at times still working in us, in the flesh is, yeah, I remember, yeah, I think he paid for everything, but let me, let me throw a few things in there too. We just, it, we always have to come back to it every day. We have to remind each other of this every day. That's why Paul's writing these epistles to the church, reminding them every day. Here's what Christ has done for you. Trust it. Believe it. Let me pray for us. Father, we do praise you for the forgiveness of sins in Christ. We do confess our need for him every day. We thank you for the new heart that you've given us in him. We thank you for the sanctification that you're bringing about through him in us. We thank you for that day that we're looking to when we will be glorified with him in his presence forever. Every sin cast away, every tear wiped away, only perfect, holy, righteous worship and fellowship forever. And so we pray that you would strengthen us now in the inner person, that you would help us to comprehend with all the saints the depth of your love for us, the completeness of your atoning work in Christ, the perfection of his sacrifice so that we would never leave it, only believe it, only cling to him and follow him and delight in him and obey him until that last day in Christ's name, amen.